Thanks, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the uh, pastors here at the Parkway Church. Uh, thanks for uh, being here this morning. As, uh, as Dave just read, we will be in Romans 6, 20 through 23. So uh, as you are turning there, I want to uh, tell you uh, a little bit of uh, insight into myself. So uh, if you have a job like me that involves a lot of uh, kind of mental processing, a lot of uh, thinking, I know some of you don't. Some of you have jobs where you're just out there and uh, you're swinging a, uh, an axe all day or whatever it is, a bunch of lumberjacks or something. But uh, if you uh, happen to have a job that just involves a lot of thinking or writing or studying or reading or whatever it might be, occasionally you will probably find yourselves uh, kind of spinning your wheels at times. Your mind just doesn't seem like it can get any traction. It's just kind of spinning in, uh, in the sand. And, uh, and so I often find that. And, and and uh, I'll be working on a sermon or a teaching or something like that. I'll have uh, uh, looked at the text. I'll have read the commentaries, all of those kinds of things. But I'll, I'll just, somehow my mind will just kind of get stuck. And I'll just realize I've just been staring at my computer for 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it is. And uh, I've, I've literally done nothing. And so uh, in those moments, I tend to get up. And I get up and I take a walk. I take a walk to what I call the turtle hole. It's, uh, there's a little pond just north of uh, Minshew Elementary. And, uh, and so there's a lot of turtles there. That's why I call it the turtle hole. And, uh, and so I'll walk there and pray and think and process. And often, by the time I get back here to the church, there will be just a little bit of clarity, a little bit of insight, a little bit of traction, and, uh, and I can move forward. But occasionally, that doesn't work. And, uh, and so I will just go ahead and, uh, and leave and go to the gym and, uh, and work out. Not only does that kind of uh, just kind of get my mind off of it, uh, but it also is uh, certainly good for the body. And so there's just something freeing about that for me. And the gym is this sort of breeding ground for a lot of things. Uh, it's a breeding ground for uh, viruses and vanity and bacteria, and lust, and on and on you could go, but it's also a breeding ground for sermon illustrations. Just everywhere you look, there are various little anecdotes, uh, and one of the, my favorite things to do besides actually work out at the gym is to kind of like a creeper, just kind of people watch. I just like to, uh, to sit there in between sets and, uh, and just kind of watch what other people are doing, and, and one of the, my favorite things to observe is when someone will go, very confidently, they will go up to a machine, and they will sit down on that machine, and then all of a sudden, you see this look of utter panic come across their face as you realize that they realize they have no idea what that machine is for. And so uh, oftentimes what you will then see is uh, all of a sudden, conveniently, they get a phone call in that exact moment. Uh, it must be just God's sovereignty or something like that to rescue them from it. And so they will get a phone call or pretend that they get a phone call, and, uh, and then they will walk away never to return to uh, that machine. That's one of my favorite things uh, to, uh, to observe. The other day, uh, I actually got to see somebody who kind of made up for the fact he didn't know what he was doing on the machine, and he just decided, you know what, I'm just going to go with it. And so I saw this guy, and he is on a chest press machine, kind of like a uh, bench press, but it's kind of uh, you're sitting up vertically, and all you're doing is just kind of pressing your chest. Uh, but this guy was not doing that. This was a chest press machine that has a little bar on the bottom for your feet, and you use that to uh, kind of raise and lower the weight to help you get started or to get finished. And, uh, and this guy was just using that. That's all he was doing. His arms were nowhere on the chest press machine. He was just moving his legs in and out 
on that bar, and there was hardly any weight on it uh, at all. At first, I just thought, okay, maybe this guy, he's just finished uh, a set, and, uh, and he's just kind of uh, working off some steam or whatever, uh, but it, he finished doing this little uh, set with his legs, and then he sat there, and he rested, and then he started up again. He sat on that for about 10 minutes. He never actually did a single chest press. The machine says chest press. Uh, there are handles uh, at chest level. There's even a little graphic, if you're familiar with this, there's a graphic that shows a, a human body or a, a figure of a human body, and it shows in highlights the parts of the body that that uh, particular machine works. Nowhere in there was anything below the waist highlighted. It was all upper body. But this guy was just going with it. And I thought, man, that is a beautiful illustration of our passage this morning. What fruit were you getting when you were in sin? What fruit were you getting by working out, by exercising sin? There's no fruit that comes as a result of all of your effort, all of your labor, all of your frenzy and flurry of activity as a result of sin. That's what our passage is about this morning. No matter how many reps you do on that machine, if you're not doing the right exercise on the machine, it doesn't bear good fruit. Likewise, no matter how many reps or sets of sin you do in your life, it will not ever bear good fruit. In Romans 5 that we were in uh, about a month ago, in Romans 5, we uh, saw that sin reigns in Adam. Sin reigns in Adam but that grace reigns in Christ. So this question naturally uh, would come up. If where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, why not sin all the more? If the more that I sin, the more that God's grace is manifest in my life, then why don't I sin all the time so that God's grace would be manifest and His glory would be expounded for all to see and for me to experience? That was what chapter 6 is seeking to answer. That question, why not sin all the more so that grace may abound? And so far, over the past few weeks, we've seen a number of answers to that. Ways that Paul would answer that question. Why he would say, you don't sin all the more so that grace may abound. First, we've seen that Christ has died for sin, which means if we've been united to Christ, that we have died to sin. Romans 1 through 3 is making this statement that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And you will ultimately die in your sin unless you've been united to Christ. And in being united to Christ, you have died to sin. You will either die in sin or you have already died to sin. That's the first reason that we can't sin all the more so that grace may abound because Christ has died for sin, which means we have died to sin. Second, we've seen that we are no longer under the dominion of sin, but we're under the dominion of grace. We're no longer under the lordship of sin. We are under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the lordship of grace. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to God. So that's another reason we can't sin all the more so that grace may abound. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to God. Third, we've seen that we have a new nature. And as a result of that new nature, of having this new heart, this new covenant promise that God would take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, as a result of this, we have a new nature and thus a new disposition towards sin. You and I, as a result of our union with Adam, as a result of being in sin, 
we had this disposition towards sin in that we loved it. We love sin and we hated righteousness. But if we've been united to Christ, if we've experienced regeneration, if we've been born again, we have had our hearts open so that we now hate sin and love righteousness. That's another reason we don't sin all the more so that grace may abound. And then this week we see yet another, a fourth and final reason that we should not and indeed we cannot sin all the more so that grace may abound as we consider the utter futility of sin and the consequence, the end of sin, which is death. Why not sin all the more? Why not do more and more reps? Another set of sin because sin is fruitless and futile and fatal. That's our text this morning. So let's pray and then we'll dive in to it uh, together. I want to ask first that you would just pray for yourself as you come in with fears and frustrations and distractions. Maybe you felt like you really crushed it this past week, or maybe you felt like this past week really crushed you. Would you ask for the Lord to give you grace this morning to, that you might hear and see and behold and believe? And then would you pray that for those around you as well, for family or friends or even the person sitting next to you that you've never met before? Would you ask that the Lord would give them eyes to see and ears to hear? And then lastly, would you pray for me, that the Lord would give me boldness and confidence and keep me tethered to his word. So Father, we thank you for the gift this morning that we have to be able to open up your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us as he has inspired this text. May he now illumine uh, it to us that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, would you incline our hearts your testimonies. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin in Romans 6.20, which says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So this verse here begins as an extension and an explanation of where we ended last week uh, in verse 19, which says this, Romans 6, 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul uses this imagery, he uses this analogy of slavery to communicate our original relationship to sin and then our subsequent relationship to God through union with Christ. Now in some sense, slavery can be kind of a misleading analogy for us. As 21st century uh, Americans, we tend to think of slavery not through the lens of first century century Roman slavery. The first image that comes into our mind is actually uh, 18th or 19th century uh, African slave trade sort of slavery. We think of slavery that is inherently unjust, that is oppressive, that is tortuous, that is, uh, uh, that is grievous, that is horrific, that is evil, that is racist, all of these sorts of things that's demeaning, uh, all of these sorts of ideas. But that image actually distorts our understanding of the text because of all of the various differences that existed between or that exist between uh, modern forms of slavery 
from the 18th century into even what you think of as slavery today in terms of the sex trade or whatever it might be, uh, any of the modern vision, visions of slavery differ quite dramatically from first century uh, Roman slavery. We wrote a uh, paper about that on our website. If you just go to our website, search the word slavery, you can uh, pull up that paper and it will have uh, just a number of ways in which slavery is going to differ uh, today from how it differed in, uh, in Paul's day. It's kind of like using the word telephone. So when we talk about slavery now versus slavery then, we're using the exact same word, but we really mean something very different. So imagine using the word telephone and all of the various differences that exist between how we use that word today and how you might have used that word 50 years ago or even 60 years ago or 80 years ago or something like this. When I say the word telephone today, everyone tends to think of something like this. Something like an iPhone or an Android or something like that. Nobody just naturally thinks of one of those rotary phones or something that connects you to Edna or something like that. And you have to ask her to ring up Dr. Jim or something, whatever it is. Nobody thinks of that sort of illustration. It's the same word, but the usage of the word has changed. The concept behind it has changed. The same thing is true of slavery. We're using the exact same word, and there are some similarities but it's also vastly different in terms of how we think of slavery uh, today. And so slavery can be a, a misleading sort of analogy. That's why in verse 19, Paul had written, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, Paul is going to recognize in some sense there are certain things that are true of slavery, even first century slavery, that are not true of our relationship to God. So I don't want you to embrace those aspects of the analogy. I instead want you to embrace the parts of the analogy that are true. And so even though this can be a, a bit of a misleading analogy or misleading imagery, Paul still thinks it's profitable for us, uh, especially as we consider our previous relationship to sin. Slavery is a perfect image of that. In some sense, slavery is not as good an image for the way that we relate to God. God is not a cruel or capricious master, which is what we tend to think of when we think of slavery. We tend to think of uh, whips and chains and all of those kinds of things. That is not how God deals with us, but that is a very good image for how sin deals with us. Sin is unkind. Sin is cruel. Sin is malicious and vile and vicious and all of those sorts of things. And this is a fitting image of how you and I in the flesh, how you and I, by virtue of our union with Adam, how we were related to sin. We were enslaved to sin. This is not merely something that Paul says. Jesus said this in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul says it elsewhere, not only in Romans, but in Titus 3, 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Even Peter gets in on the action. Second Peter 2.19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. In Adam, apart from Christ, you and I, by our very nature, or enslaved to sin. You might not have never noticed the chains. You might not have ever noticed or felt your bondage, but you were shackled. You might have grown accustomed to your 
bonds. You might have began to think of your shackles as being like a bracelet or an anklet there for adornment. But whatever it is that you thought of your slavery or whether you even thought that you were enslaved, this truth is going to ring out that you and I, whether we knew it or not, whether we felt it or not, you and I all once dwelt under the dominion of trespass and transgression. You were in bondage to a cruel and capricious master. That is sin. That's the foundation here. And Paul says, so now, now that you've been set free in Christ, why would you pick up the chains? Why would you pick up these chains and wrap yourself up in them? That's the idea here. To be a slave to sin is to be free of righteousness. Now, that sounds like that's something good. We tend to think of freedom as being this uh, really good thing. The word has these connotations for us that are very positive. Uh, And so we love talking about freedom. We love free speech and free spirits and free food and these sorts of things. Ironically, people gathered all over the Metroplex and illegally shot off uh, fireworks in celebration of our freedom over the past uh, few days. We love talking about freedom, but there are types of freedom that are not good. There are types of freedom that are not worth celebrating. Zach talked a little bit about this uh, last week. Uh, he mentioned these signs at the entrance to various concentration camps like Dachau or, uh, or Auschwitz. These signs that stood over the concentration camps so that as you walked into the concentration camps there with the Third Reich, there in Nazi Germany, as you walked into them, you read this sign and it said, work sets you free. Work sets you free, but what cruel irony, what kind of freedom is offered there? The only way that you're getting out of there is through genocide and holocaust, through incinerators and gas chambers. That's not the kind of freedom that we want to celebrate. Well, neither is the type of freedom that is talking about here in Romans 6. To be free of righteousness is not something to celebrate. It's something to lament. It's something to grieve. It's something to mourn. To be free from righteousness is to be intrinsically and inescapably enslaved to sin. As an illustration of this, kind of imagine that you're enjoying a, a lovely cruise on the Caribbean or the Caribbean, however it, it is, depending on how pretentious you are. But however it is that you say that, you're enjoying this lovely cruise out on, uh, on the sea, and all of a sudden it's attacked by pirates, like real pirates of the Caribbean, not like Captain Jack Sparrow, but like Blackbeard, somebody who's like actually vile and vicious. And, uh, and these pirates, they, uh, they take over your ship and they come to you and uh, they make you walk the plank. Now, if Zach was here, which he's not today, he would interrupt. He'd probably stand up in the middle of the sermon and say, uh, actually, historically, that's not true. Pirates really didn't make their victims uh, walk the plank. But bear with me for a second. And uh, imagine these are like real progressive plank-walking pirates who enjoy stereotypes and those kinds of things. And so they make you walk the plank. And as they're doing so, uh, they say, we're going to tie this rope around your ankle. And they tie this rope around the ankle. And then they take the other end of that rope. And they they give you an option. They say, you're either going to tie this other end of the rope around this cannon 
or around one of these uh, life preserver ring things. Those are your two options. Which are you going to choose? Well, obviously, all of us are going to choose tie me to that life preserver thing, whereas to be tied to the cannon is certain death. To be tied to the life preserver is life. That's the imagery here. You're either bound to sin, which leads to death, or you're bound to righteousness, which leads to life. The problem isn't bondage. It's what you're bound to that matters. The problem is not slavery. It's who's your master. Is it sin or is it God? To be free from the preserver is to drown in the sea. To be free from righteousness is to drown in sin. That's what it means here when it says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's not the kind of freedom that you celebrate or want. That's the kind of freedom that ends up with your death. This passage is going to continue for us what we've seen, this theme that's been developed in chapters 5 and chapter 6, that you are either in Christ or you're in Adam. You're either enslaved to Christ or you are enslaved to sin. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. No one in this room is in a third condition. You're either in sin or you're in Christ. You're enslaved to one or the other Freedom to sin is actually slavery. Slavery to Christ is actually freedom. Let's look at verses 21 through 22. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's a whole lot here. So let's start with this image of fruit uh, when, uh, when Jerry Hallbrook, who was the, uh, the pastor here for the past 25 years, uh, whenever he moved down to Conroe, he gave me a little uh, weight bench set that I put out in, uh, in my garage, and I'll head out there occasionally uh, to work out, and, uh, and oftentimes my daughter, my little two-year-old daughter Larkin, will want to come out there, and she will want to also exercise. And, uh, and so uh, she'll come out there, mostly just distracting me from actually getting anything done. And, uh, and one of her favorite things to do is to jump rope. She loves to jump rope. And uh, this is my in- in- impersonation or impression of her jump roping. She doesn't jump. She kind of misses the, the main part of jump roping. She just kind of moves her arms up and down, and, uh, and that's it. Uh, she also loves pull-ups, which consist of me just lifting her up and down, and those are pull-ups. But my favorite things that she does, my absolute favorite thing that she does are push-ups. And in push-ups, she will uh, get down on, uh, on all fours, and, uh, and then she just moves her head up and down like this. That's all she's doing. Kind of looks like a, a chicken that's like pecking seed or something like that. Now, it is unbelievably cute. It is incredibly cute. I have a lot of video of it. I'll show it to you if you're ever interested. Uh, it is so, so cute, but it's also completely worthless as an exercise, as a workout. She's not building strength or stamina or anything like that in, uh, in her little thing. Well, sin is kind of like that. It's all frenzy, but it's no fruit whatsoever. What fruit, what reward, what good were you getting from all your sin? That's the question that Paul is asking us. A wise man once said, you never count your money when you're sitting at the table. That's what Paul is asking us to do here, though. He's saying, look down, look at your life, look at the table. What money, what fruit, what reward, what good are you getting? What benefit are you getting from all of your sin? None, unless you count shame and death. That's it. 
The game is rigged. The house always wins. And you go home destitute and destroyed. No good fruit whatsoever grows on the tree of sin. Now, some of us might object at this point. Some of us might say, you know what? I lived a life in pursuit of sin, and my life has been good. I've seen a lot of fruit. I've found a lot of fruit in my sin. I lied and cheated and stole my way to the top. I was unhappy in my marriage, so I divorced my spouse while having an affair, married that other woman, and now I couldn't be happier. Look at all the fruit that has come as a result. Sin often seems to pay out. If sin is fruitless, why do the wicked prosper? The Old Testament will ask over and over and over again, and the answer is because it's all a lie. It's all a mirage. It's kind of like having stacks on stacks of Monopoly money, which is really great if you want to buy Baltic Avenue or Boardwalk or something like that, but it's absolutely worthless when you try to cash it in for sanctification or joy or hope or eternal life or anything at all that actually matters. Sin hands you a poisoned apple. It looks delightful. It might even taste delightful. And yet looks and tastes can be deceiving. The fruit of sin is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which looked desirable. And we know how that turned out as it brought death. Now, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, look at all of the imagery from Genesis 3 that's here. All of this garden language that you see here. Recall back in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve, they go and they eat of the fruit. And in that moment, they experience two things. They experience shame and they experience spiritual death. Fruit, shame, death. Notice here in verses 21 and 22 of Romans 6, you see all three of these, fruit, shame, and death. So let's talk about shame for a second. What is shame? We've all experienced shame to some degree in our lives. It's this feeling of being vulnerable. It's a feeling of being exposed. It's a feeling of being uncovered as Adam and Eve are going to experience shame, and so they seek to hide themselves behind fig leaves or bushes or something like that. We've all experienced shame uh, of some type at some point. There's various types. There's various forms uh, of shame that you might have experienced. There's one type of shame that's particularly painful. It's the shame of being abused or violated or sinned against. There's another type of shame uh, that is also somewhat circumstantial. It's the type of shame that is like insecurity. You're insecure about the way you look. You're insecure about the way you talk. You don't think you're smart enough or funny enough or whatever it might be. Both of those two types of shame can be really painful. The Bible in general is going to address both of those types of shame and going to, to hold out grace, God's grace and mercy as being the answer to those. The gospel does speak to those types of shame, but that has nothing to do with the type of shame that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a third type of shame. The first two types of shame that I mentioned aren't your fault. He's talking about a third type of shame, though, that is your fault. It's not the shame of what has been done to you or your circumstances, but the shame of what you have done, the shame of committing sin, the shame of living under the bondage of sin. If you can sin without shame, that's not a good sign. 
that's not a good sign in, uh, in your life. It's like uh, Carl was telling me a story um, yesterday or the day before uh, about a time that he like, tore his Achilles and he went to the doctor and they, uh, they, they pressed on one uh, of his uh, leg muscles and his foot went up and they pressed on the other one and his leg didn't do anything, his foot didn't do anything at all because he had torn this Achilles. That's kind of like this. If you can sin without experiencing any shame, that's a sign that something is torn, something's severed, something's wrong uh, in your life. It's a sign of a hardened heart. If you're familiar with the story of the emperor's uh, new clothes, it's kind of like that. The emperor is oblivious to his shame because he doesn't know that he's nude. He doesn't know that he's actually not wearing anything. Likewise, for those who are still in Adam, for those who are still in sin, the only way to be oblivious to to the shame of sin is to be under the deceptive spell of sin. So there's a sense in which we look back upon our lives before Christ with this profound sense of shame, but not a paralyzing type of shame. The type of shame that looks back on what you used to do, the fruit that you used to try to chase after, all of the reps, all of the sets of sin, you look back upon that, but you're not paralyzed by it because this is a type of shame that says, I was dead in my transgressions, but God. I was guilty, but God. I was dirty, but God. It's not the type of shame that wallows and hides behind fig trees and bushes or fig leaves and bushes, but that which recognizes I am innately naked. I have nothing to offer, and yet Christ has offered me his righteousness and clothed me with it. So the fruit of sin is shame and death, but the fruit of righteousness is sanctification and life, according to Paul. Now, sanctification is probably one of these words that you hear in church all the time, But you may or may not have a good grasp of what it actually means. You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means, as some might say. So in order to understand sanctification, we really need to uh, kind of rehearse and remember what we talked about when we talked about justification. Justification we defined as, I think we'll put it up on the screen, an act of God whereby he credits the unrighteous as having the status of righteous, which means the absence of evil in the presence of moral perfection. That's justification. It's accrediting or counting or reckoning of the status of righteous. It's a declaration. God declares something by fiat, by divine fiat. He simply speaks it into existence. And because God's word is the most ultimate thing in the universe, therefore it becomes reality. God declares us righteous, and so therefore we are counted as righteous. But our lives do not immediately and perfectly reflect that. None of us in this room, the moment that we were justified, experienced perfect godliness, perfect holiness in regards to our actions and thoughts and attitudes and all of those sorts of things. That's where sanctification comes into play because there's still this lingering residue of sin even though we've been declared righteous. So sanctification is the process of becoming what you've already been declared to be. The process of becoming what you've already been declared to be. You've already been declared to be righteous. Sanctification is the process of you learning how to actually become that. 
It's learning to become something that you've already been declared to be. And the, the illustrations that we used of that is like when you're a parent. The moment that that kid arrives, you are a parent. And now you spend the next 10, 15, 20, some of you parents out there would say the next 60 years of your life learning how to actually be a parent. You're declared to be a parent the moment the kid arrives, but then you have to go and you have to learn how. Or the moment that that preacher says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you become a spouse. Now you have to learn what marriage is all about. That's like this. You're justified, you are declared righteous, and sanctification is now becoming what you are declared to be. So imagine, if you will, that justification and sanctification are like non-identical conjoined twins. If you're a doctor out there, you're thinking, this guy's a moron. That's biologically impossible. I know that. Bear with me for the sake of the illustration. Imagine that justification and sanctification are like non-identical conjoined twins. Justification and sanctification aren't identical. They're absolutely not identical. There's various differences between the two. In fact, a lot of the differences will uh, kind of uh, help us to understand the differences between Protestant theology and Roman Catholic theology. A lot of those differences hinge on our, uh, the way that we divide, the way that we separate justification and sanctification. Also, the difference between Christianity and the cults hinges on the way that they understand justification and sanctification. So they're not identical. There are a number of differences between the two, and there's actually grave danger in, uh, in confusing them and conflating them and merging them or mixing them together. A few of the differences between justification and sanctification that are helpful for you to know. First, justification is dealing with the penalty of sin. It's dealing with guilt. That's what justification does. It addresses our actual guilt before God, whereas sanctification, on the other hand, deals with the lingering corruption and presence of sin. Justification deals with the penalty of sin. Sanctification is dealing with the ongoing presence of sin. In addition to that, justification is immediate, whereas sanctification is progressive. It's a process. It's ongoing. We are justified. We are being sanctified. sanctified. You, don't, uh, you don't become more justified. You will never be more justified than you are today if you are already in Christ. But you will progressively be sanctified. Third, we could say that justification is, this is a fancy word, monergistic. It's me, it means that God works unilaterally. You don't contribute anything at all to your justification. Yes, you respond in faith. Yes, you respond in repentance. But you respond to those things only because God has completely taken the initiative and done all of the action in regenerating you and giving you a new heart. It is monergistic. God works all by himself. He is the sole actor in your justification. Whereas sanctification is, in some sense, synergistic. In some sense, we cooperate with it. We participate with it. It's still a grace. God's still sovereign over the degree to which we are sanctified, and yet to some small degree, we get to play a part in our sanctification. So there is a danger in, uh, in confusing or conflating justification and sanctification. They're both graces, but they're not identical graces. By the way, when you blur the lines between these, that's how you get legalism. 
when someone attempts to earn sanctifi- justification in the same way that we pursue sanctification. That's going to lead toward legalism. So these graces aren't identical, but they're conjoined. They are conjoined. There is great danger. As there's danger in merging them, there's also danger in attempting to divide them. That's how you get licentiousness. That's how you get this sort of idea, sin all the more so that grace may abound. I'm already justified. What does it matter? Go and sin all I want. I'm justified. I don't care anything at all about sanctification. But where you have one of these theological twins, you necessarily have the other. It's like light and heat from the sun. You can't have one without the other. There is no justification without subsequent sanctification. And there is absolutely no sanctification apart from justification. So with all that in mind, sanctification we could define as growing in godliness or growing in Christ's likeness as being conformed to the image of Christ, becoming what you are already declared to be. And it's this fruit of justification. Wherever God plants justification into your heart, what will be reaped is sanctification. There will always be a harvest of holiness where he plants justification, there will be a reaping and a harvest of sanctification. And there is a certain order to this. Justification always precedes sanctification, just like chapters 4 and 5 precede chapter 6. Chapters 4 and 5 dealing with justification, preceding chapter 6, which begins uh, our discussion on sanctification here. But don't let that fool you into thinking that just because four and five come before six, that six is therefore extraneous or unimportant or peripheral or something like that. This is absolutely essential. As Paul has talked about here, the end of sanctification is eternal life. The fruit of our union with Christ is sanctification, and its end is life. So sin hands you this poisoned apple leading to death. That's its fruit. Christ offers you the fruit of eternal life. Let's keep going. The last verse, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with this verse. It might have even been one that you memorized on kind of the Romans road of evangelism. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that uh, Jesus died, from the, uh, died and rose again and that he's Lord, that we will be saved. But this verse, as important as that might be, is much more than just sort of a historical marker on the Roman road. One of my least favorite things to do in life is to haggle or to negotiate. I don't like bartering. I, that, whatever that spiritual gift is, I don't, uh, I don't possess it. And, uh, and so whether it's a car uh, or uh, it's a small little souvenir overseas or something like that, even if it's a context where I know it's expected, like if I'm overseas and I have an a, 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 a indigenous person that's there and they're telling me, you know what, it's actually, expe- it's actually offensive if you don't barter, I still am uncomfortable bartering or negotiating or haggling or whatever it might be. I try to lowball them and then they uh, basically just dismiss me and then I act like I'm going to walk away and then they call my bluff and then I end up caving in. That's what happens every single 
uh, time. I loved whenever we sold our previous house uh, because it was a seller's market. And so all the offers that we got were just uh, well over our asking price. So I didn't have to negotiate at all. I just simply picked the one that I liked the best, and that was it. Buying a house in McKinney was the exact opposite of that. Uh, because I got to then experience it not as a seller in a seller's market, but as a buyer in a buyer's market. And so Casey and I are driving around McKinney, and we're looking at houses. And, uh, and you would be shocked, unless you've looked for houses lately, and then you wouldn't be shocked. But you would be shocked by the, the state of filth and disrepair of some of the houses that were being sold and the price point that they were being sold at. There was this one house that we went into. It looked like they hadn't cleaned it in years, maybe like cobwebs all over the place. It looked like uh, it was decorated for Halloween or something like that. And the toilet, there was a little surprise that they left in there. And I'm thinking, you can't even flush the toilet. I know it's a, it is a seller's market, but you can't even flush the toilet. I mean, come on. And, uh, and so this was kind of our experience as we attempted to buy a house here in, uh, in McKinney. It was totally different from whatever we uh, sold. But in a seller's market, the seller has all of the power Likewise with sin. Sin is in this seller's market. It holds all the power. Sin is the only employer in town, if you will, and the wages that it pays is death. By the way, this is another one of the ways that, uh, that slavery is different uh, between the first century and any modern forms of slavery because in the first century, uh, slaves could not only... Uh, earn wages, but they could actually earn enough wages that they could then save to actually purchase their own, uh, their own freedom. So even though we were slaves to sin, Paul is saying that we were earning a wage. We received compensation. Some of you might work your entire life and you get a gold watch or you get a plaque or whatever it might be. Well, sin gives us a going away gift. You work your entire life for sin and it gives you something whenever you retire. It gives you eternal death. That's it. That's the compensation. That's the wage. There's no contract renegotiations. Sin pays one and one thing only. That is death. Physical death, to be sure, but even more than that, spiritual and eternal death. So imagine that you're taking a job you, you take this job and they begin to list out all of the perks, the various perks that you're going to get as a result of this. You get a company car. You get a sweet expense account. You get to choose your own team. They're even going to give you this great relocation package. And then after you sign on the dotted line and all that, they then say, oh, by the way, with that relocation package, we're going to move you to hell. Your supervisor is going to be Satan, and we're going to pay you an eternal death. Sounds great. Where do I sign up? Of course not. Nobody wants that sort of job. But that's the only job that's offered. That's the only employer in town. Some of us might think that sin's salary is negotiable. Some of us might think that there will be some sort of accounting error in our favor. Maybe if I'm really good, I can renegotiate and I won't earn this wage of death. Maybe if I do this, then I won't earn this wage. Or maybe if I don't do this other thing, then I won't earn this wage and instead I'll get life. But sin doesn't pity you. It's cruel and capricious. It never serves you. It always demands your submission to it. And it pays you 
whatever it pleases. And here's the problem. It delights in your death. We see here this personification of sin. Not that sin is just this abstract concept. It's personified as if it's an actual personal sort of being. It delights. It lusts. It craves your destruction and your death. If you don't understand this, very little that we've talked about in the book of Romans or very little that we will talk about as we continue on in Romans will be of much interest to you at all. But if you realize that justification and sanctification and union with Christ and slavery to sin, if you realize that in these concepts are hidden these wages of death versus eternal life, then all of a sudden you peek up a little bit. You get a little bit more interested. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Most of our staff don't have uh, traditional medical insurance. We have kind of the ministry sharing uh, plans. We, we typically pay our medical bills out of pocket, and then we send those bills into this ministry uh, that then uh, reimburses us. Uh, hopefully, at least that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, well, Larkin's bills for her, from her recent medical scare uh, were exorbitant, and so I am desperately hoping that, uh, that we get reimbursed for that. So each day I go out and I check the mail and, uh, and I just casually dismiss whenever I get credit card offers or other sorts of spam, but I do not dismiss whenever I get a check or whenever I get a bill. When I get a check or whenever I get a bill, the other day I opened up the mail and got this uh, really big check that covered a major portion uh, of her uh, medical uh, bills. And, uh, and so we were super excited that day. Uh, and then the next day we open up a bill that it just seems like there's just more and more and more and it never sorts of ends. And so those are the things that I care about. I care about anytime I get a bill or a check in the mail. Well, the letter of Romans is not spam. It's not a credit card offer that you can take or leave. It's not an offer from a real estate agent that's willing to sell your house. It's not one of these sorts of things. It's not spam from another church that's opened or that's expanding or doing a sermon series on five ways to do this or seven ways to do that or whatever it might be. To be in Adam is to receive a bill you can never pay, a bill so exorbitant that it just crushes and devastates you forever. To be in Christ is to receive a check that you could never exhaust. Never in a million lifetimes could you ever exhaust what you get in Him. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is life. You get one or the other. So if you are indifferent to this text, you don't understand at all what this text is actually saying. So let's be clear. Do we here at Parkway, do we believe in hell? Yes, we do. Do we believe in judgment and condemnation? Yes, we do. Do we believe in eternal suffering? Yes, we do. Do we believe that the only people who are going to get that are the worst of the worst? The Hitlers, the Pol Pots, the John Wayne Gacy, the Ted Bundys, the, uh, you know, fill in the blank, however you want to fill in the blank with whoever you think is the worst of the worst. No. No, we don't believe that. It's not just for the worst of the worst. It's for you and for me and for our children and for our friends. And if we stopped there, if the text ended there, this would be super depressing and no one would ever come back to Parkway. 
But there's good news here. Paul summarizes it as the free gift of God, which is eternal life. And notice it says there that this is in Christ Jesus over and over, not only in Romans, but also when we preached through Ephesians uh, a year ago, we have talked about this concept of union with Christ. This is the fountainhead from which flows every blessing for the believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, everything that you have that is good, every bit of joy, every bit of hope, every bit of life that you have is as a result of this union with Christ. Everything is a result of being united to Him. Jesus is the heir, and we're co-heirs only by virtue of our association with Him. So do we believe in the exclusivity of Christ and the necessity of the gospel for eternal life? Yes, everyone will either receive the wages of sin or the gift of God, but this gift only comes wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And speaking of gifts, notice that Paul doesn't write the wages of God is eternal life. He wrote the wages of sin, but he contrasts that not with the wages of God, but the free gift of God. He contrasts sin and God, death and life, and also wages and gifts. God doesn't give wages to his children. He gives gifts. God doesn't give wages to his children. He gives gifts. Grace is not earned. It's fundamentally free. Yet again, we see the tragic irony of this concentration camp claim that work sets you free. On the contrary, work enslaves you. Faith sets you free. We earn wages on the basis of our works. We don't earn gifts. Gifts are free and gracious, and thus we receive them not by works, but by faith, by believing and receiving. And not only does this contrast between Wages and gifts imply something about the way that we receive them, earning versus resting, but it also is going to imply a couple of things about God himself, and that's where I want us to wrap up this morning. So two things that as I was thinking about uh, this particular phrase uh, that came to mind that just thought, these are just beautiful implications of this idea that we receive not the wages of God but the free gift of God. First, it implies that God is generous. He freely and lavishly gives gifts, not bad gifts. We've all probably had times in our life where we received a gift that we really didn't like. We had to feign. We had to act like we were actually uh, enjoyed it. You, get a, you open it up, and it's a turtleneck sweater, and you think, I don't like turtlenecks or sweaters. And yet, you kind of have to act like it because it's your grandma that gives it to you. We've all received some gifts that we didn't actually love all that much. A couple of Christmases ago, one of the top things on Casey's, uh, my wife's, wish list was a, uh, a, a personalized address stamp. And, uh, and so she really wanted uh, this because we had just moved to McKinney, and, uh, and so she wanted this address stamp. And so I got it for her. And so did her mom. And so did my mom. There are a lot of things that you might want multiple of, cash or gift cards or whatever it might be. You don't ever mind whenever you get multiple of those, but uh, a personalized address stamp is one of those things. How many do you need? One is the answer, uh, uh, but she was left with three. By the way, our zip code just changed uh, last month, so now we're down to zero. We have three. None of them are actually uh, accurate uh, anymore, but God doesn't give bad gifts or useless gifts or obsolete or outdated gifts. Imagine you're in prison and he grants you parole. That's the type of gift that he gives. 
Imagine that you're bankrupt and he pays all your debts. That's the kind of gift that he gives. Imagine that you're lying in a hospital with malignant cancer and there's nothing the doctors can do and he gives you an experimental drug that completely frees you and eradicates the disease. That's the kind of gifts that he gives. Imagine that you're lying in a grave and he raises you from the dead. That's the kind of gift that he gives. He hasn't re-gifted you some used gift card or some ugly sweater. He's given you life and joy and hope and love and mercy and on and on we could go as we expound the riches of his generosity. He doesn't give you stones or serpents, but bread, fish, and life eternal. He's a good father who gives good gifts. He's generous. That's the first thing that this implies. The second thing, the final thing that it implies is that he's self-sufficient. You see, wages imply need. Don't tell Tim this, but we pay him because we need him. Otherwise, Carl is up here with a French horn, and no one is going to worship as a result of that. We pay people as a result of our need, our dependence. We pay Tim because uh, we, we pay Zach because we need him. Otherwise, we would not get a daily dose of Navy SEAL uh, illustrations or whatever it might be. Think about all the things that you pay for. You pay for things that you need. You pay because you lack something. There's some sort of deficiency. You either lack the ability uh, to do something or the desire to do something or the time to do something or whatever it might be. You pay for things that you need, but you give not out of necessity. You give out of an abundance. That's the second thing that it implies about God. He doesn't need anything. Listen to me. God doesn't need you. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching uh, at, uh, at Mars Hill, and as he's preaching, he says that God doesn't need anything since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything else that he has created. He simply gives out of an abundance of his grace and generosity and mercy, and this is actually great news Anything that you could ever even begin to think about giving to him is only because he has first given to you, and this is good news for us, because if you believe this, nothing could be more freeing, because it implies that his love is not based upon your performance. You could be fired from your job, you can lose your wages, but you can't lose God's love because you didn't earn it in the first place. It's based on His goodness, not your own. It's based on His faithfulness, not your fruitfulness. It's based on His love and not your labor. The wages of sin is death. That's all it can offer. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be free to sin is slavery. To be enslaved to Christ is freedom. So shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Paul would say, may it never be. Sin is futile and fruitless and fatal. But in Christ, there is fruit, faithfulness, freedom, sanctification, joy, and life eternal. So let's pray as we prepare for communion. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God who is generous. That when we ask you for bread, you don't give us stones. When we ask for fish. You don't give us snakes. You know what we need, and you give us good gifts. And if you've given your son for us, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? 
So I thank you for this text. And though the reality that every one of us in this room has earned death, that you in your mercy for your children have given us life. You've given us new hearts that would love and trust Jesus. And I pray that out of the seed of justification that we might bear fruit for sanctification. Help us, Lord, to be a church that grows in godliness and holiness, a passion to be conformed to the image of your Son, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.